If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 Peter, toward the end of your New Testaments, uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we'll read this morning uh, from verses 11 through 17. Now, that said, the primary passage we'll be considering is verses 13 through 17, but I wanted to read the first two prior verses uh, to help set the context. So please follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Peter writes in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And now the verses we'll be considering this morning. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray once more. Our Lord God, we have reached that part of our worship this morning when we are asking you to speak to us through your word. We very much need to hear from you. We want to know your will. We want to be shown the paths of righteousness. Uh, please, Lord, we pray that your word would be for us what you have told us that it is, a lamp to our feet and a light unto our paths. Bless us in this consideration of this passage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I plan a series of sermons in a book, I usually read the book several times, uh, perhaps with the help of some commentaries. And what I try to do is begin to identify the major themes and the overall thrust of the book. Eventually, I get to the point where I try to outline the book and then try to break the book up into various preaching sections, the sections I would anticipate preaching uh, in the sermon series. And as I begin to discern what the particular sections for preaching will be, I usually highlight particular passages, particular dates associated with those passages. Uh, that I know will require special attention, uh, either because they're rather complex or they're controversial or for some other reason they require special attention. This series in 1 Peter is no different. Uh, the section of the book we arrive at today in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, is one of those passages that has been highlighted on my calendar for some weeks as a potentially uh, difficult and controversial text. Today I'm preaching on Peter's words concerning submission to the government, and I can't help but notice that this is quite a time to be addressing that subject, uh, as first of all, uh, we just completed uh, what was a very uh, acrimonious and bitter election season, a polarizing election season, uh, and secondly, because we're still in the midst of this pandemic, which has presented unusual pressures on our government and on its citizens. Uh, that said... I think it's a reflection of the Lord's good providence and His care for us that we are considering this subject at precisely 
this time. And brothers and sisters, I hope we come to this passage with the same zeal and gladness and thankfulness to God that we would any other passage in God's inspired word earnestly seeking to know what has our Lord said and how can we walk in His will. And I pray that we come with humble hearts and eager minds to do whatever the Lord calls us to. And so my prayer this morning is that we would not only see the truth and know the truth, but that by God's grace, we would love the truth. I want to give three brief disclaimers as we approach this passage before seeking to expound these verses. Three brief disclaimers, and it would help if you keep these things in your mind as we work through this passage. First of all, I want to say that this is actually not at all a controversial passage. Uh, Rather, it is a simple and straightforward passage whose meaning is easily discerned. Any controversy we might detect in this passage is likely manufactured and imported by our own practical objections to what Peter is saying. In other words, the reason this passage can become controversial is because of external controversy that we import into the text as we read through it and as we study it. But the text itself is not controversial at all. Uh, Peter's words are very simple, very direct, and arriving at the meaning, as we will see, is not at all complicated or controversial. So I'm not going to preach this passage as though it is controversial because I don't believe that it is. Second disclaimer, uh, I'm not going to take the time to qualify Peter's words at every point uh, where I would uh, think to qualify them if I myself were making the same point Peter is making here. Uh, I'm not providing this warning a comprehensive and systematic treatment of every text in the Bible on the subject of submitting to the governing authorities. I'm not going to reference all the relevant passages on this topic with their unique nuances and burdens. My goal in serving you this morning is to preach this passage, these verses in 1 Peter 2. And I want to preach them in such a way that if somehow the Apostle Peter could be here sitting there in the back row, and if I were able to talk to him after the service, uh, he would say, well done, brother, that's exactly what I meant to say in those verses. Having said that, I will give here on the front end two qualifications here at the front of this message simply as a way of forestalling possible questions or objections. First of all, submission to human authority is never absolute. Submission to human authority is never absolute. That is to say, we never submit to human authority to the point of sinning against God. I hope that's understood, and certainly Peter understood that. We are to submit to human authority, but not to the point of sitting against our higher authority, who is the Lord Himself. A second qualification, there are occasions uh, when civil disobedience is not only warranted, but required by the Bible. So the Apostle Peter himself, in Acts chapter 5, he is required by the local magistrates and the authorities not to preach about Jesus. And in Acts 5, verse 29, there he is, appearing before the council, and he tells them, we must obey man, or excuse me, God rather than man. So even Peter himself is going to exhort us very directly to honor the emperor and to be subject to the governing authorities. He himself recognized there were times to disobey the government, particularly uh, when the government calls us into sin or to put off our responsibility of worshiping God and preaching his gospel. If you go to my study just down the hall and you Look, on the bookshelves, there are a number of names there of people who uh, broke the law in service to Christ. Martin Luther said his conscience was bound by the Word of God. He had to violate 
the requirements of the Roman Catholic Church and the authorities that were over him in order to preach the truth. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, spent something like 12 years in prison for preaching the gospel. John Owen preached illegally for about 20 years at the end of his ministry. So there are occasions when God calls us to that kind of civil disobedience. Third and final qualification before we dive into the text. This sermon will not have as one of its features a nuanced commentary on the American political system and how exactly we ought to understand power and authority in the context of a democratic republic like that of the United States. Uh, This isn't a civics lecture uh, on American history and American government. We're at church, and this is a sermon on the Bible, uh, particularly on 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. All right, let me remind you now of the context of these verses. We saw last week in verses 11 and 12, Peter uh, turns to these Christians now and he urges them as sojourners and exiles, recognizing they've been called out of the world, they're God's elect exiles, they're sojourners and exiles in this world. And he tells them to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. He focuses on their internal piety and their internal warfare against sin. But then he quickly turns in verse 12 to consider and to exhort these Christians with regard to their public conduct before the world. He says, keep your conduct honorable, excellent, good among the Gentiles. And indeed, that's the burden of the next two chapters. And so what Peter's going to do now is he's going to uh, tell these Christians how to apply this idea that we're to do good and be known for our good deeds and give attention to our public conduct before the world, he's going to focus then on narrow relationships. So this morning we're looking at what Peter has to say about Christian conduct, public conduct with respect to the government, to human institutions. And then next week, God willing, we'll look at what he has to say to servants in those days and how they were to relate to their masters. Uh, Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he will address the relationship of wives to husbands, and then husbands to wives, and then more generally in the rest of chapter 3, he will address their conduct before the wider world, their witness before the wider world, and how they endure suffering in the context of a hostile world. So the emphasis is on public conduct. How do we live as the people of God in a world, in a home that is not our own, as sojourners and exiles? And so... We look this morning at that command, that basic command we're given in verse 13, which regulates the whole passage here. Peter tells us, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject. That's the command, and that regulates this entire section from verses 13 through 17. We'll divide our consideration of this passage under three main headings. First of all, the extent of the command. Secondly, the incentive for the command. And thirdly and finally, the attitudes and behaviors required by the command. That's really application there. So the extent of the command, the incentives for the command, and then the attitudes and behaviors required by the command. First of all, consider with me the extent of this command from the Apostle Peter. Look with me again at verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Very simply, to whom are Christians to be subject? The very simple answer, if you were diagramming this sentence, the very simple answer is every human institution. Whether it be the emperor as supreme, as occupying the highest office, 
or to lesser authorities like the governors who are sent by him, were to be subject to every human institution for those at the highest office and then lesser authorities uh, on down the way. But I don't think we should limit what Peter is saying. I don't think he's saying simply to submit to only the emperor and the governors. Uh, Rather, the emperor and the governors are, are two examples of human institutions we are to submit to. He says we're to submit to every human institution, like the emperor, like the governors sent by him. But I don't think he's limiting that statement to apply only to emperors and governors, those two offices. So what does Peter mean when he refers to every human institution? Very simply, what is meant is those typical authority structures and institutions that humans form for the regulation of society as a whole. So I'll say that again. Peter says every human institution. What is meant is those typical authority structures and institutions that humans form for the regulation of society as a whole. So think not just emperors, kings, presidents, uh, prime ministers, or governors, or the courts. I think also law enforcement. Uh, Think also bosses, parents, uh, professors if you're a student, every human institution, those sorts of social structures and institutions of authority that are the bedrock of society and that, by the way, transcend pretty much every culture and every nation in our world today, though they take varying forms across the world. So in providing this command in this way, I think, uh, Peter is not interested in trying to temper lessen or reduce the requirement on Christians. Rather, as he addresses these Christians in Asia Minor, I think he wants to expand and in some ways absolutize this call to submit to human institutions. In other words, Peter wants these Christians to appreciate that they owe submission to perhaps more people than they think. Uh, He's saying, don't just think it's uh, the emperor as supreme. Rather, it's every human institution. Even the governors, Peter? Yes, the governors. Uh, Even the local magistrate? Yes, the local magistrate. Uh, Even the police and law enforcement? Yes, to every human institution, Christians are called to be subject. The idea is we're not to eagerly search out reasons why this or that authority in our lives is not qualified or is not worthy of our submission. Rather, we're to have this posture that whatever the human institutions are that God Himself has set over me, I will humbly be subject to them. Now, I think part of what Peter is doing here is he's tempering what he just said a few verses ago. Uh, So you'll remember, if you were with us, we had a few verses on chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and there uh, Peter is acquainting these Christians with the very high privilege and status they have Uh, as the chosen race and as the holy nation and as the royal priesthood and as the people for God's own possession. He's saying, uh, you are not like the other people of this world. You have an exceptional and privileged status in this world. Yes, you are sojourners and exiles, but you are the people of God. And it would have been to impress upon these Christians the most lofty sense of authority and privilege that God had given them this special status. And he's told them they're sojourners and exiles. Uh, But now he's saying that all of that privilege, all of that exceptional status does not add up to an exemption 
from submission to the authority structures in this world. Yes, they are called out of the world. They are God's elect exiles. But now he's saying those elect exiles, you sojourners and exiles, you are sent back into the world. And the will of Christ is that you submit yourselves to the world's authority structures, which is probably, I think, the exact opposite of what they would have thought. Like, we're the children of God. We're free with respect to man. We belong to God. We're the royal priesthood. We're the chosen genus, the chosen race, the holy nation. And perhaps some of these Christians thought, I'm above the law now. I belong to God. I don't belong to this world. I live by God's law, and I have no responsibility to subject myself to the authority structures of this world. Peter's saying, not so fast. Don't draw that conclusion. Yes, you have this high and lofty privileged status. Yes, we are not of this world, but nonetheless, it is God's will that His people be subject to the authority structures of this world. Now, notice, so we're talking about the extent of this command. Notice that just as Peter supplies no qualification with respect to the extent of the command, every human institution, he doesn't bother to qualify it. We're to submit to the highest to the lowest authority God has set over us. So he also provides no qualification with respect to the character or integrity of those who are in authority over us. You see that? He doesn't say submit to the emperor if he turns out to be a really honorable guy. Uh, don't, he doesn't say don't or submit to the governors if they only always and ever enact just and righteous policies that are agreeable to you. No, rather... Peter says he wants them to be subject to the emperor even if the emperor is personally corrupt. Their subjection to authority was not dependent on whether or not the person in authority was worthy or unworthy. The call to submit to a particular leader did not depend on the moral virtue of that leader. You say, Alex, are you just reading that into the text? How do you know that? Well, I know that because the emperor at this time, you may know, was Nero. He says, honor the emperor. He's like, honor Nero. Do you know about Nero? Nero was a wicked and immoral and bloodthirsty man. Oh, and by the way, he's the emperor who puts Peter to death. So, so Peter is telling us to submit to the very man who unjustly, unrighteously, oppressively, tyrannically is putting Christians to death, Christians like Peter. Now, there is, in some Christian circles, a certain way of approaching passages like this and commands like this. First uh, Peter 2, Romans 13 would be another great example of certain passages in uh, the Gospels that talk about submission to authority. There's a certain way some Christians read those passages where they, they sort of qualify everything and kind of shave off all these little bits and rough edges of what's being asked of them. And what you're left with is something like this, this command. Uh, submit only to those authorities who prove to be at every point upright and agreeable to you. And submit only to those laws that you have concluded in your own mind are completely and totally just and fair. Okay, that kind of way of reading these passages is totally foreign to the way they're presented. That is to do great violence to these texts. Uh, Peter is saying to these Christians in Asia Minor, I'm asking you to do something that I know is going to be very hard. I'm asking you to honor and to be subject to a man that you know is personally corrupt and who is a wicked man. And to submit to laws, by the way, 
we know this from study of history, that were tyrannical and oppressive to these people. Nonetheless, Peter expects them to be subject. There's a popular hashtag. You know what a hashtag is? Maybe some of our older members, you know what a hashtag is? Uh, on Twitter, I don't really know how to, exp I didn't think of how to explain what this is. It's like hashtag, and then you have a word or something, and it's a way to bring all these people in on one conversation surrounding one topic. Uh, young people here, you'll notice last week I referenced Instagram. This week I'm on to Twitter. I'm just trying to be relevant and, and hip, okay? Uh, don't expect an illustration based on TikTok anytime soon. Uh, but, but, but there's this popular hashtag on Twitter. It was popular under the last administration. It's popular now under this administration. Uh, usually the, the tweet, the little message people send out, is something ugly and vituperative and sarcastic about the president, and then it's hashtag not my president. Like, like he may have that office, but I, I don't acknowledge his authority. And usually it's in the context of some vitriol that is expressed about the commander-in-chief. That attitude, brothers and sisters, is disallowed by this passage. And I would say that regardless of who was in office. We acknowledge the authorities that God has set over us. And God's will, God's requirement is that we give honor. We are subject ourselves uh, to the authorities that are set over us, every human institution, even those who are lacking in integrity and might be unworthy of some of that respect we would give them. Romans 13, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, listen to this, brothers and sisters, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Whether or not the man above us is a person of integrity, whether or not we voted for his or her policies, uh, whether or not we support their platform, that is not the issue. The issue is obedience to the Word of God and to the authority structures God Himself has ordained. That's the extent of the command. We are to submit to every human institution from the highest to the lowest, no qualifications given about the character and integrity of those above us. Now, the second major heading. Consider with me the incentive for the command, or the motivation that's given for the command. Be subject, verse 13 says, and we can easily just pass over this, but it's crucial if we're going to be faithful in following this passage. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I said I don't want us to just know the passage, I want us to love the passage. This helps us to love the passage. Huge implications here for our obedience. Peter is in essence saying, when I tell you to be subordinate, to be subject to the emperor, I'm not saying you should do it because the emperor is so great and so worthy of your respect. I'm not saying you should be subject to him because he is so awesome and so worthy and so honorable. You could find him atrocious and so distasteful. You could find his policies to be awful and corrupt. But recognize, brothers and sisters, your submission to him is not ultimately about him. When I call you to be subject to every human institution, Peter is saying, I am calling you to do it for the Lord's sake. Do it as unto 
the Lord, which means when we submit to lawful authority, we are really submitting to God Himself. Not in the sense that that man or woman above us is God, but that that man or woman above us has been placed in our lives by God. And in submitting to them, we are submitting to the institution that God Himself has put over us. I'm to recognize God has placed this authority figure in my life, and this authority figure may be wicked. I may find him or her to be odious. It may be a sore trial to me, but I recognize God has put him in my life, and to buck under his authority is then to buck under God's authority. We submit to rulers and authorities for the Lord's sake, and friends, this ought to change everything about the equation for us. I'm doing it as unto the Lord. I'm not doing it for him or for her. I submit for the Lord's sake. I am doing this because God's smile and his approval is what I live for. And if it is honoring to him, if it will bring delight to my Savior who's bought me with his blood, then I can do so gladly and cheerfully. Even if this is hard, even if this seems oppressive, even if I don't particularly like the person over me, If I know that this will honor Christ, well, then I can obey gladly. That is enough for me. Peter goes on to say, subject, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We read Psalm 1 twice this morning. We want to walk in the way of the righteous. We want to live according to His will. We want His law to be our delight. This is the will of God. That by doing good, by submitting to the authorities, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Again, the incentive is that this is what God wants. This is God's pleasure in our lives. Uh, To take a very practical example, this week I got the dreaded letter no one wants to get. I have been summoned for jury duty. Uh, Of all the things COVID took away from us, uh, I would hope jury duty would be one of those things we wouldn't have to do when a pandemic is with us. Well, I got the letter, and I did what every person does when they get that letter. I copped a bad attitude. I don't want to do this. Why am I required to do this? i got a busy life. i got three kids. i got things i got to do. Now, I can go down to the courthouse on, I think it's March 2nd or whenever it is, and I can grumble, and I can complain, and I can say, this is just such a horrible intrusion on my life. I, I'm so important. I'm so busy. i got people that require things from me. Why do I have to go and do something like this? Or I could think, be subject for the Lord's sake. Alex, this is the will of God. These authorities have been placed into your life. God and His sovereignty, who knows the details of how every molecule in this world will move and has even ordained it, He sent you the letter. He requires this of you. It is honoring to God. Can that have the effect of changing my attitude? Should that have the effect of changing my attitude? Pray for me. Hopefully it does. I want to be subject, humble to God. We could think of, that's a somewhat trivial example, But you might think about paying your taxes. We're doing that in this season of the next couple of months. Uh, Paying taxes is brought up in a number of places in the New Testament. It's brought up several times in the ministry of Jesus. Unequivocally, in every place where it comes up, the Lord tells His disciples they are to pay their taxes. Uh, In Romans chapter 13, verse 7, Paul puts it plainly, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now listen, we know this again from studying history. The tax code in those days was not particularly fair. 
It wasn't a just tax code. And I don't think there's ever been a tax code in history that the entire population has agreed is just and fair. That is not the issue. Uh, so uh, Paul and Jesus and Peter don't say, well, if you do discover that, that the tax code is fair, well, then pay your taxes. If it's not, I'm giving you an exception. That's not the way the New Testament writers approach this subject. Uh, rather, the point is not to argue whether or not the tax code is fair or a perfect reflection of righteous principles. That conversation can be had. Elect leaders who maybe implement a more fair tax code, but that's not the point of these commands. The point is to recognize God's authority in placing this or that authority in our lives who has put the tax code in place. And God's will is that we submit to rulers and to policies, even if we find those rulers and those policies less than just. And we're to do it, our text says, for the Lord's sake, because it's the will of God because it invites his smile and approval. Before leaving this point, I just want to look at verse 16, because it's on this, this same idea, the incentive for the command. I want us to understand what Peter says here. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Do this out of service to God. It's a striking statement. Here's what I think Peter is saying. He is saying, you are free with respect to man, your allegiance is ultimately to God and not to man. You are a free people. You're part of the chosen race. You're citizens of the holy nation. You are free. But he quickly adds, don't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. In the immediate context, I think he means don't use that freedom as an excuse to become some kind of anarchist or some kind of revolutionary or someone who bucks up under the authority structures of this world. Don't act as though your freedom as a free citizen of the kingdom of God means you no longer have an obligation to honor the authority of the human institutions. That would be to misunderstand and to misuse your freedom. I think he's basically saying don't be insubordinate to the authorities and then plead, well, I'm a child of God, so I have an exemption clause. I'm part of the chosen race. I'm above the law, don't you know? He's saying, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, live as servants of God and submit to the human institutions and governing authorities as God Himself has called you to. God has put the emperor over you. God has put the governor over you. Therefore, you are to be subject to them precisely because you are subject to God. Now, before leaving this second point by way of application, because by now you might be thinking, this is really hard, and I don't particularly like what is being asked of me. Can God really be requiring this of us? Uh, friends, I'd encourage you to appreciate just how hard it must have been for these Christians. There was no such thing in those days. I mean, these Christians would have lived under oppressive tyranny. There was no such thing as political activism. Like, like we could engage in political activism. We could vote. We can advocate for policies, we can advocate for candidates, and we should do those things. That kind of freedom is utterly foreign to what these Christians would have experienced. But I think Peter understands. He's asking them to do something very hard. I don't think he's blithely throwing out this command, expecting that this would be uncontroversial or hard for them to follow. I think you would have had some among these Christians who would have thought, Peter, do you know what you're asking us to do? I mean, do you understand the hardships that this is going to present for us? Peter, do you even know who our governors and local magistrates are and how ungodly and immoral and unjust they have been? I mean, have you, 
Have you heard about the police taking bribes in our area? Do you know what you're asking us to do, Peter? I think Peter understands this is going to be so hard for them, which is why I think he supplies this incentive. You can submit to the emperor. You can submit to the governing authorities knowing that you do it for the Lord's sake. He's holding out for them this higher motive, this grand incentive and motivation. This is pleasing to the Lord, brothers and sisters. That's why you submit. I had in my life someone that I was in relationship with uh, in a certain setting. I'm being vague because I don't want to give the details because it's being recorded. Uh, but, but someone who's exceedingly unreasonable. Uh, someone who was really actually hurting me in significant ways. And um, I went to the authority, the appropriate authority in my life, and I was, I was making my appeal. Can you intervene and do something about this? I don't like what is being required of me through this relationship with this thoroughly unreasonable person. And I remember that authority figure saying, Alex, I understand that person's being unreasonable. I'm asking you to do it for me. And y'all, that helped me. Because I looked at that authority figure and I thought, well, he's good and he's wise and I know he has good plans and purposes for me and he wants me to thrive and to flourish. He's saying to do it for him. This person may be unreasonable and someone I can't work with, but this person who I know is good and wise and knows what is right is saying, do it for me. Well, that just eased the burden for me. Well, similarly for us, brothers and sisters, the Lord is not going to bring anything into your life beyond what you can bear. He's not going to tempt you beyond what you can handle. The Lord sees and the Lord knows that one day everything will work out and right will be vindicated and wrong will be judged. You can plead your case to Him on that day. But what He says for now is, for my sake, my disciple, be subject. Submit to them. This is the will of God. Exercise your freedom not as a cover-up for evil, but as servants of God. That is the incentive, the motivation that he gives for us. And brothers and sisters, if these saints could submit to Nero for the Lord's sake, we can certainly submit to a president or a governor that we didn't vote for. And friends, again, I'd say that no matter who was in office. All right, consider with me thirdly and finally, the attitudes and behaviors required by this command. We've seen the extent of the command, the incentive for the command. Now, the attitudes, practically, the attitudes and behaviors required by this command. And there's three in particular that I'll highlight. First of all, very simply, we are required by this text to submit to the authorities in service to God. Be subject is the main imperative. That has implications for our behavior and for our attitudes. In essence, Peter is saying, do what they tell you to do short of sin. I appreciate if, if you were here last fall when our brother Aaron Menikoff from Atlanta, Georgia came. He comes every year uh, in the fall. He was here with us, and I very much appreciated this little phrase he gave us for how to think about submission to the government. Uh, he said that we should always endeavor to obey where we can and disobey where we must. Obey where we can, disobey where we must. Uh, so you are a church in the United States, you have a building like the one that we have, the government requires that the building uh, be up to certain fire codes, or else you can't gather without a fine. 
Can we submit to that? Certainly. Of course we could. Regardless of what we think about the fire codes, we can submit to what the government has asked us to do. If you are Christians in China, a Christian of a certain type, uh, and it is required, your meetings are censured, you are not allowed to gather to meet to worship God. Submit where you can, disobey where you must. You must disobey. We will obey God rather than man, Peter says in Acts 5. I think that's a helpful principle to think as we follow the lead of our governing authorities. So what behaviors are required by this passage? Submit to the government short of sin. Pay your taxes, submit to the law. Peter wants to make clear that Christians are not insurgents. Uh, They are not radical revolutionaries. And Peter learned this in a big way, didn't he? There was a time when he bucked under the authority structures and he assaulted a police officer. What does the Lord tell Peter in that instance? Peter, put your sword back in its place. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. John 18, what does the Lord say to Pilate? Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would have been fighting. You see, Christians, we're not fighters. We're not radical revolutionaries. Christians are not pugilists looking for a fight, uh, seeking to find some way that we can revolt against the authority structures in our lives. No, that's not our thing. That's not what we do. We submit when we can, and we only disobey when we must, and if we must, then we accept the consequences. The submission required by this text has implications for our behavior, certainly. It also has implications for our attitudes, to the things we say, to the things we think, to the things we post online. And I, brothers and sisters, I think it's a huge way we can stand out from the world. Uh, We live in an age where it's just so common and so easy. People are so free with saying ugly things online and giving just just very negative and nasty opinions about others. May, May our speech and our conduct and our presence online be marked by kindness and charity and civility and honor. I'll just ask you, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, but if If the Lord Himself took inventory of your text messages and your social media stuff and your conversations with your friends over the last year, uh, would you be proud of how it stacks up against this text? I'm not saying we can't dissent from laws that are passed or policies that are put in place. I'm not saying we can't oppose governing authorities. What I am saying is there's a certain character and quality even our opposition should take. We should disagree and object as ladies and gentlemen, uh, as Christians, uh, as those who are still showing honor to those who the Lord has put in authority over us. That's the first application. We're to be subject to the governing authorities. Second, attitude, behavior that is required of us, and this is huge. I actually think this is the main burden of the text. Very simply, number two, we are to do good. We're to do good. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Doing good is massive in this epistle. It's going to come up again and again and again. This is what Christians do. Who are Christians? They are the people known for doing good. So just look with me. Hopefully you have your eyes on 1 Peter. Look again at 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles 
honorable or good, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 1 Peter 3, 10 through 11. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 1 Peter 3, 16 through 17, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter 4, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Who are Christians? They are those people committed to doing good in service to this world and to the service of Christ. And that's what Peter says in our text. This is the will of God, that by doing good. You're not a radical revolutionary. You're not an anarchist. You're not an insurgent trying to buck up against authority. Rather, you are known for doing good. Doing good is what puts to silence the objections of ignorant and foolish people. What is the encouragement with respect to our attitudes and behaviors? Plainly, Peter says, we're to be eager to do good. I'm not looking for opportunities to buck under the system. I'm not constantly looking to find loopholes and ways I can avoid doing what the government is asking me to do. Rather, I'm looking always for opportunities to do good, to be the kind of citizen who contributes good to people seeks to meet practical needs, seeks to do good toward my fellow citizens and toward the government itself, the kind of person eager to do good for my neighbor. And frankly, brothers and sisters, this is the story of Christianity. Christians have been doing good for 2,000 years. It was the story of the early church. Do you know where hospitals came from? You read the Bible, there's not a single hospital in the whole Bible. There were no hospitals in those days. You know who invented the hospital? It was Christians in the early church. That's our thing. We came up with that, and it was all altruistic and not-for-profit. People would come, and Christians trained in medicine would help them and heal them and do good to them. Do you know about the infanticide walls? Do you know what that is? People used to come, and they used to bring their babies, and they'd put them on a wall and leave them to die. And the Christians would come, and they'd reclaim them, and they'd bring them home and they'd care for them. We did good. We were committed to doing good. And there's stories of Athanasius and Basil of Caesarea going out to those infanticide walls and taking clubs, taking sledgehammers and tearing them down and telling the local magistrates, if you have unwanted children, we'll take them. We'll care for them. Because we are a people zealous for good works, people committed to doing good. This is the Petrine vision the Christian ideal, that we are a people that do good. Look up any of the nonprofits in Winston-Salem. I guarantee you almost all of them have Christian origins. Whether it's caring for refugees, 
or providing ESL classes or fighting sex trafficking, human trafficking of all forms, adoption organizations. Brothers and sisters, this is what we do. We are philanthropists. We give ourselves to benevolence and to doing good in the world. And this is what God is calling us to do through the Apostle Peter. I wonder if you have ever studied or looked at uh, the Victorian era in England. That's the 1900s. Can I tell you about the Victorian Christians and what they were like? I don't know what your impressions are of Victorian living, probably doilies and teacups and frilly dresses and posh, polite kind of society. What Victorian Christians were known for above all else, this is the the moniker you can give over them. In fact, one historian has done this. They were the people committed to doing good. That's what they were known for. It was an age of extraordinary philanthropy. Listen to this. This is in a very obscure historical textbook, but it fits so well with this principle from Peter. We're to do good, putting to silence ignorance and foolish people. This is from the historian Owen Chadwick, uh, leading historian of that era. He says this of Victorian Christians. The working-class critic of Christianity abused the ministers or their people of disregarding the plight of men and women in this world because they concerned themselves with another world. No charge could be less well-founded. The common charge of the atheists that the churches were indifferent to this world because they busied themselves with the next was refuted by the extraordinary social action and sometimes heroism of otherworldly men and women. To quote another historian, the impulse to do good was vibrant among Victorian Christians. From Lord Shaftesbury, who started the ragged school movement to provide education for needy children, to William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army to combat poverty in London's East End, to Thomas Barnardo, who cared for London's orphans, to many prominent women who were zealous to do good, like Josephine Butler, who fought against prostitution and human trafficking, and Elizabeth Fry, who labored for the reform of England's prisons, and Elizabeth Gilbert, the blind daughter of a bishop who opened the first workshop for blind men in her home in 1853, to Florence Nightingale, an Anglican who revolutionized the field of nursing. Friends, these Christians were committed to doing good. They were faithful to the vision set before us by the Lord Jesus who called us to be a people who are like a city on a hill whose good deeds are seen. Draw people to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. People who followed the vision of the Apostle Paul who said that we are to do good to all, Galatians 6.10. Titus 2.14, to be a people zealous for good works. They are those faithful to this ideal in 1 Peter. To be a people who honor those in authority over us and submit to those institutions doing good. One more quote. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great philanthropist in his own right, was very close friends with that greatest of philanthropists and social reformers in England in the Victorian era. His name was Lord Shaftesbury. Anthony Ashley Cooper, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, they just call him Lord Shaftesbury. When Lord Shaftesbury died, this is what Spurgeon had to say about him. We shall not know for many a year how much we miss in missing him. How great an anchor he was to this drifting generation, and how great a stimulus he was to every movement for the benefit of the poor. Both man and beast may unite in mourning him. He was the friend of every living thing. 
He lived for the oppressed. He lived for London. He lived for the nation. He lived still more for God. All of the good He did, the benevolence, the charity, the care, walking in the paths of righteousness, He did for the Lord's sake. We could think also of the Lord's servant Job that was said of him, he made the widow's heart sing. Or Tabitha. Do you know about Tabitha? She's called Dorcas. I prefer to call her Tabitha. That's another name given for her. In Acts chapter 9, she dies, and Peter is called to her bedside, and there at her bedside are all the widows of the city, and they're weeping because their great patroness, their great heroine had died, and they're showing all the cloaks and the tunics that she had knitted for them. May God fill this church with those kinds of women, women like Tabitha, men like Job, and like Lord Shaftesbury, and like those saints of the early church. These saints knew what it meant to do good. Peter says, in doing good, you are putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people who perhaps say, well, you know those Christians. They're never up to any good. You know they have no burden to contribute to the good of society. Oh, they're so disrespectful. They dishonor the governor. They never submit to authority. All they care about is themselves and their little holy huddles. Friends, we're to remove those objections. We're to make them appear ludicrous. The governing authority should look on Christians as the greatest of their citizens. They are committed to doing good. They're committed to the good of society. Do you know why one of the main obstacles uh, to churches being stripped of their tax-exempt status is? Do you know why uh, governors, senators, congressmen have stopped short of that? I mean, there's reasons related to the Constitution, but also because to stymie the church in the world would be to thwart the greatest philanthropic institution in the world. The government depends on the good and the largesse and the philanthropy that is put forward, the good conduct, the good behavior of Christian people. May we be known as those kinds of people, giving ourselves to doing good even as we submit to those in authority over us. I had a third point, but I'm mostly out of time. I just wanted to briefly hit this very quick sort of drive-by commands Peter gives in verse 17. He says, we're to honor everyone, not just those in authority, but the way we engage, the way we speak, the way we act, we give honor to everyone. We're to love the brotherhood, would be committed to the church, and in our churches, we show forth a community devoted to these kinds of ideals. We fear God, not man. We don't fear the emperor, we fear God. And finally, he brings it full circle, honor the emperor. Let me encourage you with this final word. Brothers and sisters, remember, ultimately, we can be subject to the human institutions of this world because God in Christ subjected himself to the human institutions of this world, even to the point of death on a cross. And in his case, there was nothing lawful or just about his situation. Subject to a sham trial carried out by men who were the very embodiment of oppression and unrighteousness. But he did it. He subjected himself to the authorities for our sakes. And so if he who has bought us by his blood wants to tell us now to submit to the governing authorities for his sake, should we not gladly follow his command? Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, help us in these things. 
though we are not in the position of those Christians to whom Peter was writing those 2,000 years ago, we still find this a hard command to obey and to apply. Give us wisdom. Give us humble hearts and submissive wills. Make us to be lovers of the truth. Help us to love this incentive, this motivation you give us, that in being subject to the authorities and institutions you have put in our lives, we have this opportunity to bring a smile to the face of our Lord, to invite the approval and the benediction of you, Father. Father, may that drive us to be those who are eager to submit. And more than that, those who are committed zealously, earnestly to do good in this world. May you help your churches in every place, and may you help this local church in particular to be a church committed to this vision for good works that you lay out for us. May we be known in this community as a benevolent people, as a merciful people, a compassionate people committed to doing good to those around us. May even those who instinctively might hate the truths that we believe, may they love the conduct that they see reflected in Christian people. May all around us know they have lovers of their fellow men here at Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem. And may that love, that benevolence, that good conduct be like a golden thread that draws them into the life of the church, may it draw them into the place where the gospel is preached, and may it lend such credence to that message. May we have the opportunity to show forth to the world what the grace of God does to a man or a woman when it gets a hold of them. And may they know that they too can be changed, becoming lovers of their neighbor, submissive to authorities over them, committed to doing good to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Help us in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.